the more precarious you are, the more these aesthetic concerns, these moral concerns have to be shoved aside. The other thing is that people are sick. People are sad. People are lonely. People are anxious. We're not tolerating it very well. I'm interested, I think, in our demons. I'm interested in the shadows of the system. That isolation, that atomization has reached a sort of peak in this context where there isn't really a boss. There isn't really anybody you can complain to, let alone a colleague that you can speak to. My mother says that I never met a wheel that I didn't want to reinvent. There's something about the improvised moment of utterance that I feel like is just everyday magic, you know what I mean? But it's about a sort of boundlessness that at its best allows an expression of meaning. This is Downstream From What? I'm Ken Moffat. Today, I am talking to podcast co-creator Ben McCarthy. So, my name is Ben McCarthy. I teach uh, labor history and connection to art. I'm also a sound artist and I work in various media. Let's start with spec work. Okay. Um, that's how I first became uh, aware of you is through spec work. So right. can you describe the work of spec work? Spec work kind of began more humbly, more naively. People in my life were social workers, uh, nurses, and you, we were seeing funding being cut. We were seeing these important resources being defunded, and it was a the healthcare crisis unfolding. And I had this naive notion that if people only became aware of these narratives, mm -hmm. then it would change their relationship to how healthcare is supported and how people who are accessing these frontline resources are supported. I, so I, on the one hand, wanted to engage this practice of interviewing, which I've used in various projects, podcasts and artworks and stuff like that. I also just as a personal habit and hobby collect interviews with people in my life. And my friend John had just begun to play with programming in VR. And so we applied to Mayworks with this project about frontline workers. And frontline work meant something very different before COVID. Mm -hmm. That was people who were doing harm reduction. Some, somebody like Kathy Crow, who we interviewed for this project, um, who is a pioneer of street nursing. That was something that was frontline work, not necessarily um, being a grocery store worker. And so it just emerged out of that uh, sense of experiment and that sense of trying to get these stories out. And um, as we were working on the project towards completing it for Mayworks, um, John brought in his partner, Kat Bloomkey. So it's Jonathan Carroll and Kat Bloomkey. And we kind of formalized as a group for a period working on a few different projects. Escape from the Gig Co., which is a app kind of about Amazon workers. And this project resourced, which is the one I'm describing about VR and frontline workers. Spec work has remained John and Kat, and they continue to do kind of labor-oriented projects that 
sometimes I work on and often not as much. And it, it, it's based on the interviews of frontline workers resourced. So the initial project included four interview subjects, a social worker who was close to me at the time, uh, the woman who you described who was one of the people who inaugurated the Moss Park Safe Injection Site, a woman who was a trans and indigenous outreach worker for Maggie's, the sex worker advocacy group, and uh, Kathy Crow, and Kathy's protege, Roxy Danielson. Mm-hmm. And we did get a little bit of funding for it from the Canadian government, but we realized that we wouldn't have... Moving away from that kind of naive experiment towards something more uh, kind of like publishable to a public, like we Mm -hmm. worked with a video game producer fellow, Um, we realized it's like making a movie. You know what I mean? It's it's a big undertaking. And so we kind of narrowed the scope to just focus on Kathy and Roxy. Oh, I see. And it turned out it was like going into COVID, everything changed and ramified dramatically. Right. What frontline work meant and how the dangers of that frontline work became more severe, not only for, of course, the workers, but for the people who they're serving. So that it ends up really just focusing on uh, Kathy and Roxy and kind of uh, Kathy's prognostication that like things things will continue and have gotten worse than anything she's experienced in her life and Roxy reaching a point of burnout over the course of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think that's still Kathy's position that, uh, especially for street nurses as she self defines that it's over. It's just so difficult. It's so risky. I think it was, and it was, it was really, um, moving and kind of harrowing to interview Kathy and Roxy because, it's easy to kind of stay abreast contemporary media and to kind of like scan the headlines and to feel kind of despair and to feel that like things are at like a, at a real crisis point in various respects, a housing crisis, healthcare crisis, opioid crisis. Uh, and then to have that confirmed by somebody who knows, right. by somebody who is an activist, somebody who is doing like that care work on the front line and be like, actually, the nurses who are coming up now are having a way more challenging experience than I ever did. Part of what impressed me about you is not only do you talk about the qualities of VR, but you can also talk about the labor of VR, the labor of technology. And uh, and you, as you self-introduced, you are on that cusp of labor and art or labor and technology. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you see um, technologies kind of um affecting labor like an art is that too abstract a question um in terms of the labor question uh subsequent to the second world war you see uh, a strong union that enables uh advancements for the worker under the collective aegis of union power and then after the post-war compromise you see the contrasting forms of power, whether that's managers or government or whomever, through attrition 
working to undermine those gains that were made by industrial labor in particular, but that applied more broadly because of the Rand formulation. And one of the, one of the plays that constantly happens is as labor morphs, you see those people who wish to undermine labor rights trying to s switch the discourse around how that work should be understood. And equally and oppositely, uh, labor does the same. Technology has, through app-based work, led to a dramatic shift in how work is done. Now, whether that's like fulfillment centers and factories, or if you're an Uber driver or a, a Uber food deliverer, skip the dishes, whatever have you, this has helped lead to a gigification of work. If part of the play has been to redefine labor, the, these, this new form of work that is emerging out of app-based work is not only redefining uh, labor as contract workers, entrepreneurs, uh, mm -hmm. gig set, uh, grind set workers, but it is also further isolating and alienating workers. So you see management and government seeking to separate and partition workers even in the post-industrial labor economy. But it has been that isolation, that atomization has reached a sort of peak in this context where there isn't really a boss. There isn't really anybody you can complain to let alone a colleague that you can speak to. Now, there is good work being done to fight this, good and creative work being done by emerging unions and organized labor groups. But um, So that's the labor side of the tech question. Art is uh, being absorbed into technology in uh, also very complicated ways. Like, I'll speak just to music. Taylor Swift very recently was talking about how she cannot make money off tours. And this is like a household name. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was reading recently, Resident Advisor put out a, a story where if historically 16 to 17% of people represented in, in electronic music were working class, that number has dropped to around 6.9%, 7%. So streaming has had a major impact on the ability of musicians to make money. Um, and I think that this has broader effects. Uh, artists generally are increasingly having to come from the ranks of uh, the middle class and upper middle class. You have to have money going into it because art is devalued in a digital context where, A, it can circulate rapidly and without any sort of accreditation or let alone remuneration, and B, the feed has a flattening aesthetic effect where a post of some tawdry event that takes place in a McDonald's has the same or greater impact as whatever pictures from your most recent opening. A couple things. The idea that there's no boss anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, even in large enterprises like banks now, 
there's yeah. no boss yeah. like if you're working on web design uh, yeah. my partner works on web design and constantly complains there's just no boss yeah so, so you don't know if you're doing well or not any longer you don't know what the standard is of your performance you don't yeah. know about your own security or if you have any security it's just in both these cases actually what you're talking about the music and the gigification yeah um security is just lost it's, it's yeah. not part of the equation any longer i mean it's a cliche but it's not a bug but a feature yeah if competition is built into our notions of capitalism if resources yeah. are zero sum and if surplus is only going to accrue to a narrow portion towards the top of that pyramid then Neoliberalism depends on that scarcity mindset, that precarity mindset. And that scarcity is conjured and it's generated by uh, media and ideology, but it's also real in the right. sense like it is hard to find an affordable apartment, nigh on impossible to find an, uh, an affordable apartment, let alone whatever materials you might need to create your artwork, let alone whatever you might need to. What is it? $75,000 you need to have a basic level of satisfaction living in Toronto, a basic um, living standard in Toronto. Who's making that? I think we both have an interest in this notion of precariousness and how yeah. it's represented and I mean, it's economic, but it's also cultural. You you have a podcast. Precariate content, yeah. yeah. Precariate content. Yeah. Why did you name it Precariate Content? Well, I think if I'm honest, um, precarity was emerging as an important discursive term at, at the moment that I kind of began uh, working on that project and, and giving it a working title. I do think precarity is serves a fundamental function in what we submit ourselves to when we submit to the labor market. If you accept that most work is going to be alienating, if you accept that most work is going to engage you in um, morally uh, complicated or reprehensible uh, practices, causing you to engage in ways that you don't find fully ethical or that you, don't, you can't stomach even for aesthetic reasons, what is motivating you to do that? Well, the more precarious you are, the more these aesthetic concerns, these moral concerns have to be shoved aside. I mean, you grew up in a working class household. Mm -hmm. This is part of the discipline that you experience. It's like, well, I don't want to do this. The factory is too loud. I get sunburned working construction. My head is vibrating from working in the quarry. Yeah, well, how do you tend to pay for things? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, are, what we're, you know, we're ripping uh, the guts out of this ecosystem. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? You got to work. Do you want to have a car? Do you want to have food? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think precarity serves a particular function. But I also think that in my kind of like turgid, long-winded way I was trying to capture before, we are becoming aware that we reached probably a historically unprecedented and unrepeatable high watermark in terms of uh, resources that were available to us, especially in North America. And we can look back and see that high watermark and see what was possible in terms of not only consumer goods, not only in terms of lifestyle, but in terms of a kind of expansive 
liberal capitalist project. And we're watching that be foreclosed on. That dream is not available anymore. Those right. treats aren't for us anymore. And so this sense of precarity, you can see it um, stepping down from one generation to the next. The glibness of Generation X, the kind of despair uh, of the millennials and the Zoomers kind of uh, abject glee at uh, kind of like, okay, well, let's bring on the apocalypse. And I'm obviously dramatically generalizing, but precarity is in the air. Yeah, I mean, even uh, today, there's a news item that Davos, um, they're talking about um, polycrisis, I think is the term. Um, you know, admitting like yeah. we're just screwed. I'm environmentally, politically, there's no stability. We're in polycrisis. I often wonder why do we have such tolerance for this level of precariousness? I'm not necessarily... I'm pretty protected in my position, but but when I think about the people living in Toronto who are still here, who have been able to stay, yeah. who are renting at rents they can't afford, yeah. who um, basically go day to day, what's what's this tolerance like? Why do you think we have a tolerance for precarity? Or is that even a fair way to characterize it? Is it just a necessity? I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. I think, so you have Doug Ford platforming on everybody should have available to them the kind of like single family home with a white picket fence. When I poll my students on what class they belong to, they will very frequently over-identify with being middle class. Uh, there are a few things that foster that. I think media it often focuses upon a leisure class or the middle class. This fluctuates over time, but especially since the 80s, um, there's a lot of aspirational figures in television. Um, so I think our imaginary is very captured by the notion of um, attaining to middle class values, and we construe ourselves to be so, and that's enabled by debt. We have, we have a lot of mm. credit card debt available to us. And so even if we might have to live off rice and beans a week out of every month, we can still have a very nice pair of Jordans. So I think there's this this fantasy element that d- does some work to alleviate the the pressure of precarity. I think class consciousness has become a sort of myth like something we can look back to with wet eyes. Uh, we don't really have a real class consciousness. And what I'm talking about when I talk about class consciousness is talking about the sorts of work that we do, the sorts of experiences that we encounter as belonging to a particular class. And I'm speaking from a very weird position because I'm what I've heard Matt Dryhurst refer to as like a third culture. I am coming from a middle-class background. I am hand-to-mouth. But I'm ensconced in a uh, at least superficially middle class existence. I get to take trips away. I get to have a membership at the art gallery or whatever. Class is a subject position, but different from, say, race. 
you obviously can change your social sta- status through education, through um, uh, career, and you can change what you have access to culturally through that. Mm-hmm. But if you are raised working class, you still have that those points of reference. You still have that kind of uh, geopsychological space that you grew up in. But you, you go and you become educated, or you belong, especially me, moving from rural to urban, and that alienates you from that upbringing. You have different reasons for those allegiances that you might have had if you stayed in your small town to, to place them under scrutiny. They don't take hold in you anymore. So this third culture is you have this working class origin, but you, ha- you live amidst and wield some of the uh, social powers of a middle class person. Well, Zadie Smith has this great line in the book On Beauty about entitlement. Because entitlement has become a bit of a dirty word. Oh, this person, this man is so entitled. But when she talks about raising her children, she says she wants to raise them with entitlement. Uh Because entitlement gives you a sense of, uh, yeah, I guess not to put too fine a a point on it, what you are owed. And I think... Obviously, Uh we have to be careful about what we think we are owed by other people. But institutionally, what is available to us, this gets back to this question of this class consciousness, this this class solidarity. We have lost a sense of what we are owed. Yeah. And we're not holding, like, as critical as we want to be of the state. We've discussed this, you and I, before. Yeah. There is no other uh, bridle to place on capital, on corporations, than the state. Right. <laughs> and, and so until we understand what we are owed, right, we're not going to give hand the state a mandate that says, put a bridle on these people. Yeah, maybe that's to go way back to my question about why, why the tolerance of precarity. Um, I mean, part of it is there's not enough of a sense of entitlement, it seems to me, to health and security yes uh, yeah and i think the uh, the other thing that really needs to be said is that we are individuals so ideologically there are these things that obscure what and who we are to ourselves but the competitive framework the precarious framework is really grounded by a sense first of me and what i need and uh-huh. then my nuclear family, right? With all of the kind of associations that we have of monogamous and heteronormative and the rest of it, yeah. And something that class solidarity is subtended by is kind of the willingness to risk for others, like based on a love of others, based on a notion of others that there is an inherent value that you as another have an inherent right to something from me, an entitlement. To something for me and that is very much lost and it's an ideological it's an ideologically manufactured um, absence gap
art uh, can be perceived uh, as an individual endeavor. Like the more creative self you are, the more you're yeah. an individual, the more you can push a boundary. Yeah. In that way, art or the notion of art and art creation can fall into um, it's about the self first. I see that. I do see that, and I and I'm and I'm and that criticism is one that one encounters. I was I was reading um, an, a PDF of interviews with Agnes Martin, and one of the things that she talks about is the artist's role as having perfect awareness of self of the feelings and thoughts that pass through them. And to kind of, what she's describing emerges, I think, out of her kind of like meditative practice, but it's about a sort of boundlessness Yes. that at its best allows an expression of meaning at that subsequent to whatever it is one produces, in uh, Martin's case, paintings you assess if that meaning has been conveyed. But for her, you become aware of yourself in order to get yourself out of the way so that you Amazing. can make. Yeah. Uh -huh. We are in a body. We are uh -huh. singular, but we yeah. are only by an imaginative construct individual. Right. I think what Martin is saying, or maybe this is my own intuition that I'm attaching to her, is we can connect through ourselves by understanding the sorts of limits, the sorts of needless um, closures that a cult of individualism produce in us. And so I don't think art has to be the project of some uh, individual genius. I, right. I think you become a conduit and, I, and not in a kind of oh I'm a medium oh I'm Jesus it's it's a conduit the same way air is a conduit and water is a conduit you're just you know I, I see you as an artist who, um, if I might, <laughs> uh, who who really does push the boundaries of expression of art while being quite conscious of the social. Um, yeah. You don't come across as the individual genius, like that yeah. you're trying to manifest that. Yeah. Um, so could you talk about this layering in of social? in the creation of your art yeah. and actually it's occurring to me there's probably a prior question where we should get you to talk a little bit about your your perception of what your art is and what you do yeah well you're you're um catching me at a funny time because i feel like what has recently emerged for me is i work a lot with uh document in the form of interview, in the form of found sound, yeah. um, uh, sampling. And then I work with uh, sound and music 
towards um, underscoring or emphasizing or contouring this this documentary material, this found material. So what I'm often trying to do is bring together sound and text. Sometimes this is stuff that I write. Often it's what other people say or recontextualizing things that I find. Now, in the video games that I've been involved in, in the theater that I've been involved in, there's also often an explicit political content. So then I come in and I bring my music to try and, as I say, contour, underscore, work with, embellish these political elements. But I also have an interest in music in its own mysterious, expressive power. And there can be, there is inevitably a politics to that. Um, there are inevitably social considerations to that. But I am very hesitant to have a purely instrumental work of art and to say, you know, this is about, this is about intersubjectivity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is about, um, you know, formulating new social arrangements premised on love of the other. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, I think, in our demons. I'm interested in the shadows of the system. Like, why do we get end up at white supremacy? Mm -hmm. like, why do we end up with uh, such radical inequality, like in terms of um, citizenship or in terms of economy and earnings and the rest of it? And I think it does come from like it does come from the shadows that are in the individual, but also in the collective. But that doesn't always come out in the work, and so there's this mm -hmm. tension of how do how do how do you do music and how do I. Uh, how do I express some of this curiosity about the demons in us socially? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you combine text and found sound at times. Yeah. Um, and the text, is the text itself, is it something that's found? Could it be something that, oh, they, that was a poetic expression of, like you Absolutely. pull it out of somebody else's discussion or absolutely and so it, it can be found as well i mean you like broadly three sources like yes one source is going to be from my reading and then yes. i have somebody read it or i myself read it and integrate it into my work okay or uh uh podcasts yeah or youtube yeah as part of my re i like to walk a lot and yeah. so i'm constant when i have a question however uh minor or however existential, I look for podcasts or YouTube content on this subject. There's always somebody jabbering on about whatever it is you wish. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I listen to it and then I pull it off using my phone or using my Zoom recorder. And yes. then the third thing would be um, walking around in the world and using the voice memo app on my phone or my Zoom recorder to pull things out of the world. Um, and that can be often it's like little sonic textures that end up in songs, but it can be, you know, like eavesdropping and that sort of thing as well. So you would actually pull off a podcast, the voice, the oh, yeah. voice of the podcast and yeah. then uh, sample it, especially for um, some of my like art 
uh, installations um, or some of the new media work. Um, I like to do kind of like essays that are compiled of uh, found materials. Tried pretty hard or as hard as they could to kill artists. You know, and to destroy them and to embarrass them and to make fun of them and to laugh at them. And, you know, they tried to really to make the arts go away. And then when they didn't go away in the mid-1960s, Jackson Pollock, that's called all over painting. That's America. We're all over fucking everything. And well, if we're going to embrace the arts, we have to support the arts, you know what I mean? And the best way to support the arts, since we're all businessmen, we know that supply-side economics is what works. And the way you run Getting these sound bites from an art critic that I put beside um, an interview with Kim Kardashian that I put beside a kind of like shit post by an influencer talking about people ripping off her style and contrasting these different sound bites. I'm trying to think a little bit about how the subject is being centered as the outcome of a certain marketing strategy and how it's infecting the art practice and how we understand ourselves in the kind of social media era. Wow, that's so interesting, and the, and uh, that gets at the demons also, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it breaks it up, so you start wondering about it. Yeah, I think you can own that. It is this little bit um, leading a horse to water thing, and I think the one of the things that I, one of the reasons that I say you meet me at a crossroads is because I think I have been very interested in cause based work. Uh huh. And I think part of the reason for that is because I think of the concept as being more central to my, uh, to, especially to the, the art that I've done. Um, but as I've become more confident in making music, like I can complete autodidact with music. I didn't I have no formal training. I've taught myself everything off the internet. And I don't think that's particularly rare, but I've become more confident in expressing myself without having to subtend it with some grand concept holding on mm -hmm. by their fingernails the word precarity uh, comes from from pecare um, which means to pray so obtain something by prayer so there's always this element of being at somebody's mercy because people actually feel very 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 bad about being greedy and the privileged actually show up the underprivileged they expose the scale of underprivilege if you live in a culture which actually covertly promotes envy it's going to be very difficult for people to be kind. So then you would layer also found sounds, yeah. if I can put it that way, yeah. with the text as well. And is there an intent around mood or is so there... My mother says that I never met a wheel that I didn't want to reinvent. And so I think <laughs> when I first began doing music, I became really interested in the idea of why is it always the default that people think music is mood, music is feeling. Why is that uh -huh. always where people go? And you know, there are forms of experimental music where that doesn't feel um, to be especially true. But broadly speaking, that is how music operates. And I had to bang around in that idea for a, 
it's longer than I'd like to say before coming to the conclusion that like, oh, well, yeah, it does do that. It Uh does make you feel things. Right. But I think it does more than what we hear on the radio. I think music does more than, oh, I'm so heartbroken. Right. And, oh, I'm so full of joy and let me get drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Beer and loss and girlfriends. And and beer and sex. (laughs) Sex. (laughs) (laughs) They call them musical narratives. (laughs) I mean, some of the best things in life, but there are other things. (laughs) Exactly. So when you talk about an installation, is this something that would have a physical reality in a room? The example that comes to mind is the project that the podcast Precariat Content emerged out of, which was an installation in front of the Steelworkers Hall. Yes. And at that time, I was putting myself through very exacting moral rigors. I didn't want to like produce too much waste in this effort to talk about the artist as labor so there's this interview component where i'm talking to artists about their work as work and also the unequal distribution of privilege and obstruction that they encounter because of their subject position and then also there was a physical work and so i kind of would be up and down the train tracks um uh, scrounging bits of odd timber dragging back home broken cinder block and and bricks so that i could uh, sink the timber as a post upon which i would mount with plumber's tape uh, speakers that i would either find in the street or get from value village and rigging up this complicated outdoor system that i weatherproofed with uh sheer drop cloths and um uh the lining of uh like bike inner tubes you know (laughs) but but as a result the aesthetic was very uh ad hoc Uh it was the aesthetic was entirely based upon what i could get from basically dumpstering and back behind the city or what could be gotten very cheaply at the Value Village or the dollar store. And you were saying that was a kind of um, ethical rigor as well, right? There's been a ethos of moral purity that I was trying to submit my work to. Right. It's a bit odd to talk about labor, justice. Uh, you know, sound equipment is the result of abhorrent labor practices uh-huh. and military industrial R&D, like most sound equipment synthesizers microphones tape you know who invents magnetic tape are literally the nazis it comes from these shadowy histories and i think i was like wow how can you how can you talk out of one side of your mouth about labor justice and on the other side you're you know um uh presenting your work through this um near slave labor you know Uh (laughs) there's an intimation the way you're talking about it that you've maybe you're less harsh (laughs) on yourself if harsh i don't know if harsh is the right word but the kind of purity of the ethics of the practice you're having to let go a little bit well going back to martin i think one of the things you want to get out of the way of in yourself is this 
cognitive dissonance. I think the motivation for moral purity is to think that you can somehow escape. You can somehow, right. with your little angel wings, float above all of the this stuff that's happening. I don't right. think you want to revel in your complicity, but I don't think you want to imagine that you're outside of it. And yeah. so, yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how do you wrestle the cognitive dissonance? Well, you got to stop thinking that you are not a captured capitalist subject. That's, I think, where you start. Right. And also um, being aware of this, you know, what's called the rush to innocence. Like, yeah. by trying to step out, like, do everything in a perfect way, yeah. you're really trying to just be out of it yeah. instead of reworking uh, yeah, but it's not fun are. to be guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, most of us are, you you know, a lot of my good friends, a lot of people close to me, a lot of people are, uh, you know, kind of saddled with guilt and shame. And that's yeah. before they begin to think about the social implications of their privilege. Right. And yeah. so I think, you know, you talked about what, how do people tolerate this precarity. The, I gave several answers about why they might tolerate it. The other thing is that people are sick. People are sad, people are lonely, yeah. people are anxious. Yeah. We're not tolerating it very well. It's a bit of mine where I'm like, well, I don't, I can't play any instruments. And I think <laughs> part of that is I just, I don't have a, the dexterity to be an excellent guitar player. I haven't put in the hours to be a fine pianist or a synth player, keyboard player. And I come from the, a place where I like to read the theory. I like to read about the concepts. You know, I read... Pauline Oliveros or John Cage, or I read about synthesis and I read about digital signal processing. And then these things inform what I feel is possible from the work. Uh -huh. I also feel like I don't have very much to offer qua music. Uh -huh. I don't have the sensitivity to chord modulation. I don't have the uh, compositional chops. I think... Maybe I have an ear for melody, and I think certainly I have an ear or a sensitivity to the affect that sonic texture offers me. Hmm. That is to say, I can hear a thing and I feel whatever that sensation is that the sound gives me when I give it attention, and then I say, okay, how can I bring this into a work? And a lot of times I'm just collecting 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 i have friends who send me sound my partner sends me sound mm -hmm. i feel like you're also dealing with utterance yeah. like and at a philosophical level yeah well can you elaborate that <laughs> I, I know it's my perception but and i can give you a better question if you need no i think that. like i'm a libra and i really <laughs> like to talk and i guess like we are in a moment where podcasters are um, 
our, the rock stars of our day. Uh-huh. That being said, like if there was a practice, <laughs> if there was like an accepted artistic practice where all I needed to do was talk, yes, I think uh, <laughs> I think I would start with that. But uh-huh. uh, I don't I don't think there's much of an audience for uh, people listening to me talk, and so. <laughs> To put it more seriously, I think historically uh-huh. I've uh, I was very divorced from my body. Uh huh. I liked drinking and I liked sex and I liked body things. Uh huh. But I wasn't very good at I I didn't understand my body and I didn't understand myself as a body. And so I think sound as a focus has been a way to open up to myself as body. And utterance, in particular, is this very present, very embodied thing. And so, being a person who's interested in theory and being a person who's interested in concept, you are always in the past or you are always in the future. Or even when you're sitting right here, you're calculating your response or you're assessing how things are landing with other people, you know. Like... There's something about the improvised moment of utterance that I've, I feel like it's just everyday magic. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like one of, the, one of these, you know, like Matisse says, there are flowers for those who will see them. <laughs> yeah. There's a direct quote I took from your text uh, that I thought is how I perceive you, but also I just think it's really poetic, and I'm going to invite you as a final question to to speak to it. It's basically that you approach, quote, fraught allegiance and critical power of aesthetic form married to political content. Thinking like about the extent to which one does cause-based work, it is hard to articulate a question that is in a meaningful way going to crack open the allegiances of the person in the audience to their ideological moment. To put it another way, Marx says of ideology, you don't know you're doing it, but you're doing it. How do you make someone know that they're doing it. How do I myself maintain awareness that I am doing it? So the technology that we use to disseminate our work, the technology I use to present my work, and the social circles in which that work uh, might move, it's all, it's very, very complicated what it's doing, if anything. And yet, at the end of the day, I do think that making music and expressing my inklings around certain uh, political observations or whatever, that is a vocation. It's what I want to be doing with my time. And as a matter of fact, I am a bit of a suck. I don't like doing other things. I don't (laughs) want to (laughs) be a bike messenger or a bouncer or a construction worker anymore. Right. I would like to make music or i'd like to you know talk (laughs) (laughs) that's great thank (laughs) thank thank you so much ben really really interesting oh thanks for interviewing me 
Downstream from what is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari. Original score by Ben McCarthy. Downstream from what is created under the auspices of the Jack Layton Chair and is funded by the Dean Faculty of Arts, the Dean Faculty of Community Services at Toronto Metropolitan University.